You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our sermon text is from Genesis 14, verses 17 to 24. After his return from the defeat of Chaturlomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me, let Anner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Thank you, Joanne. There's a lot going on here in this verse, isn't there? It seems like there's a whole lot going on. And we, want, we tend to want to focus on Melchizedek, not just because it's fun to say, um, but because he's mysterious. Um, we t- we, as people, we kind of tend to want to focus on the mysterious and not necessarily the bigger picture. And, for example, when you think of the Chronicles of Narnia, you think of the mysterious guy that you want to see and the most want to see the most is probably Aslan. So we tend to focus on Aslan instead of the characters around him. And that seems kind of to be the case here. While Melchizedek is definitely important in this um, part of scripture, there's a lot going on before. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. We're going to be focusing on those verses that we just, that Joanne just read. But we're also going to camp around the verses preceding that lead up to this scripture because not only what Melchizedek says is important, but the events that lead up to it are is important because they're the reason this encounter will start to flesh out some things that are meaningful to us. So what uh, what happened prior to this encounter with Melchizedek plays a major role in Abram's life. And I might say Abraham now and then. We're talking about the same guy. You can happily think the song, Father Abraham had many sons, had many sons, had Father Abraham's song on that. And it's just going to keep coming out. When I'm saying Abram, I'm saying Abraham. If I see either, I get them mixed up. We're talking about the same guy. So the events before and after this meeting are instrumental to explaining what's important and some important principles to us as well. And the things we can grab out of it. But the key verse, I want to say the key verse in this scripture is from 1422. I think this is the key verse in this in the reading of this scripture. I thought of uh, 1422. 
But Abraham says, but Abraham said. So all this stuff's happening, and it goes, but Abraham said. And then he says to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. That is such a key verse in there. I want you to hold on to the thought and hold on to that as we're going and fleshing this out. This key verse directs us and enlightens us to three points that we're going to glean from this section of scripture. Three points that I want you to take with you as we unpack these scriptures. They will become clear as we unfold the events in this section of Abram's life, growth, and his journey. And in turn, you might recognize times in your life, in the past or today, where you need to embrace them for your own, for your own walk, for your own journey. So the three, you got them up there already. Good. Confidence in the Lord, compromising the forsaken, and your calling embraced. And that's for every one of us. And I want that to really be absorbed into our hearts and into our minds. Now, before we get into it, I want us to pray. So I'll be calm, so God's word will move forward. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, and eyes to see, and a heart of understanding, that we might know the goodness of your love, that we might find confidence in you, that we would forsake compromise, and that we would embrace our calling. And the goodness of your love and salvation. In Jesus' name I pray. So, so we're going to focus on Machilzadek eventually, but let's get our attention to the events that surround and lead up to the interaction between Abraham and Machilzadek. I want to get into the epic battle. And I'm going to try to explain this. When, we re when you're reading this originally, you, can over, you just kind of like glaze over it because there's all these names are popping off. So you got this epic battle between, and Sarah read it so good last week, I wish you would just say the names for me right now, but between Shedalormar, Amraphel, which makes me think, I'm trying to think of the turtles when I think Amraphel, Donatello, and so you got all these kings, the ones in red, and we kind of, we tend to glaze over it because they came this wasn't just a battle between them and Sodom, Gomorrah, Bella, and all those five down there. That wasn't just a battle between them. They started out, they went through that first one, Ashtoreth, Ham. I mean, they were just devouring these nations to uh, Shaveh, and they just came down to, uh, they came down to El Paran, Kadesh, and then they came up, and then you had this epic battle, and they wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah as well. And then when this happened, Sodom, the king of Sodom and, uh, goes hiding into the mountains. But the fatal mistake, they made a fatal mistake. The, uh, the kings were winning this battle, Chet Alormar and those guys. They made a fatal mistake. And their fatal mistake was when they decided that they'd take Lot. Because who's Lot? It's Abraham's nephew. Now, I don't know how protective I'd be of my nephew, but I definitely, I know I'd be protective of a family member. And I think that Ab if you didn't take Lot, Abram's not getting involved in this. He don't care about Sodom. He don't care about the king of Sodom. He got involved because Lot was kidnapped. 
So we got Lot, Lot is kidnapped, and word comes out and goes back to Abraham, Abram. And Abram hears the word that, that Lot, his family, and all his possessions were taken away. And so he riles up his three, 318 guys. Now, I don't know, how many soldiers do those four kings have? It's way more than 318. It's got to be way more than 300. These, they got to have way more than 318 soldiers. So I'm thinking, Lot's got 318 trained men. They must have been like, Abram's guys must have been like Navy SEALs or something. Because they're going to go 318 against this massive army of four different kings. These are the same four kings that took Lot and his family. So we read it in chapter 14, verses 14 to 16. When Abram, had, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and the servants. He defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. So then Lot is now restored out of captivity. And this isn't the last time Abram's going to have to get involved in Lot, as we'll learn in the coming weeks. But he's restored out of captivity because Abraham decided to intercede on his behalf. Why did Abraham intercede? Because it's family. Remember at the beginning of this whole thing, we go back to chapter 13. And they couldn't, there was battles between the two tribes, or between the two groups, Lot and Abram. And Lot chooses to move towards Sodom. He made a decision to go towards the wicked Sodom. It even, it's clear there in verse, in verse 13, chapter 13, that they were full of wicked men and great sinners against the Lord. So that's, an, that's one re, another reason why um, Abram wouldn't have gotten involved if it wasn't for Lot. So we might want to be think that Lot is kind of getting what he deserved by moving towards this wicked city, knowingly moved. He went by, like Justin, you talked about it last week. He went towards the, he made a decision based on what things appeared to be like. And so Lot goes that way, and Abraham, and, and this is a, like a, one of the turning points, I think. We might think that Lot got what he deserved. But I want to ask you a question. How many of us want what we deserve? I'm going to guess a zero. And also, and we can read in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, Lot was remembered as being righteous, as a righteous man. You can look that verse up if you want, but it says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, you're like, righteous Lot? He's like, I don't get it. How can Lot be righteous? Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul, over the lawlessness 
deeds that he saw and heard. So Lot is moving towards the wicked city, and at the same time, in contrast, at the same time, Abram, on the other hand, is then immediately, we look at verses 13, 14 to 16, hears from the Lord, giving him great confidence. This is where I think Abram was really starting to embrace his confidence. It reads, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you, where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give you. and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that no, if anyone can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Abraham's confidence in the Lord enabled him to enter into a battle, a battle with 318 guys against four other kings to save his nephew Lot. A battle which appears on paper to be foolish. Don't you know, do you know that the, many of the battles and the things that we go through as Christians are going to look foolishness on paper? For, for example, I'm only, I'm not, I can only think of myself as an example because I'm pretty foolish at times. But to pack everything up and just move out to South Dakota, my family, I mean, we're first generation Christians. They had to think, we're, what in the world are you doing? Everything's here. But we moved here because I think God's calling us here for this time. We're here. And it looks foolish on paper. You do the math, it still looks foolish. <laughs> but what a blessing because we're doing what we're supposed to do. We're embracing God and what he's called us to do. Where our confidence is in the Lord and not in the things of man. So Abraham didn't look to the situation and think, oh well, there's no way. I'm getting involved in this. Lot's just on his own. Bummer for Lot. He gets involved and rescues. He rescues Lot. Because his confidence became, he was building his confidence in the Lord. He didn't make up excuses like he did last week. He didn't make up excuses like he did with the Pharaoh when his wife was so beautiful that he's going to call him his sister, call her his sister. This time he took the role of a good kinsman and came to Lot's rescue. Abraham, by rescuing Lot, was an instrument of God's grace. By rescuing Lot, he was an instrument of God's grace. As followers of Christ, as we go out into the world, we too are to be instruments of grace. And you tell me you don't get the opportunities. You have to show a lot of grace if you got any kids. You have to show a lot of grace if you drive on the roads. That's just practice. There's so many opportunities to show grace. If you don't see them, you're not looking out there. The world is growing darker. And if you're going to act like the world, you're not going to want to show grace. You're going to show you're going to want to show justice and vengeance. But we didn't get justice and vengeance from the Lord, he's given us grace. And so that grace has to pour out of us in that same way. So why the sudden change? Abraham's confidence was based on God's promises to make him a great nation and not what the circumstances seemed to indicate. 
Abram's confidence was based on the I wills of God, not the I can'ts of self or the fears of that are in our hearts. Our fears come from here. Our fears come from looking out there and saying, I can't do it. Our strength comes in the Lord, Jesus Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can, if I start saying, I can do all things in me who strengthens me, then I'm a prime candidate to be taken down. Pride comes before the fall. Think of the disciples after they had seen the risen Christ and they go out and they get persecuted and they're still proclaiming the gospel. Under persecution, we're not really under persecution yet. Could that time come? Sure it could come. But is our strength in Christ or is our strength in the things of the world? Our confidence should always first be in balance of God's promises. For a hope is in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. That is where our hope is. It's not in my bank account. It's not in my house. It's not in my job. It's not in my wife. And it can't be in my wife or my kids. It can't be in my ability to do anything because I most likely will flub it up if I rely on my own strength. But it's my confidence is in Christ. It's not the circumstances. When the world seems to be crumbling, and to some extent it is crumbling, we got to admit that it's going to crumble. It's just a matter of when. We must cling to the promises of Christ so that as things are crumbling around us, instead of fear, instead of holding on to fear and having doubt and being insecure about the situation, we cling to the cross. We cling to what Christ has done for us. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in John 16.33. I have said these things to you. He's reminding us. We read his word because he's reminding us. His word's eternal. The word's for us then and it's for us today. So the word is eternal. I'm reminding you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. You will have difficulties. Things are not going to go the way you think they should go. They're not going to go the things you want them to go. It's going to get difficult. But take heart. I have overcome the world. The enemy is defeated. I don't know if he knows it yet, but the enemy is defeated. So, put your confidence in the conqueror, not the conquered. Next, two things, two kings come out to meet Abram. Abraham, Abraham, Abram. Two opposing worldviews. Two different ideologies. The king of Sodom representing all that is wicked and opposed to God. And the king of Salem, who is Melchizedek, represents what is right and what is good. They couldn't be more diametrically opposite. The king of Sodom just coming out of hiding. So when the battle was taking place back in chapter 13, I think, when the battle is taking place, they're getting their tails kicked by the, those guys coming down. They're getting their tails kicked. He goes into hiding in the mountains. Real good warrior there. His men's getting slotted and he goes into hiding. So the king of Sodom, just coming out of hiding, comes out to meet or greet Abram with a business-like offer. And on the other hand, you get the king of Salem, Melchizedek, with an offer of blessing which is focused on the Lord, the giver of the gift. 
focused on the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. Abram promptly turns his attention toward Melchizedek. So you got Sodom on one side, the king of Sodom, and Melchizedek. And he's like, boom, right for Melchizedek, the, the high priest of the Lord. He turns his attention to the high priest, who's also the king of Jerusalem. In doing so, he refuses to compromise. Compromise forsaken. He's done compromising, at least for now. We're going to learn more later. But don't we all tend to struggle in compromising? Don't we go up and down? Sometimes I'm like, I'm all in. I'm going to do whatever Jesus tells me to do. I'm going to be so obedient. And other times, I'm so easily distracted. I compromise. But Abram says, I'm going this way. I'm clinging to God. Previously, Abram demonstrated his willingness to look at circumstances, compromising, relying on what appears to be a solution to an apparent problem. Remember when he was afraid that he was going to get killed because of his beautiful wife? I have that problem too. That was a, that was a, that was <laughs> that was was that appropriate? I mean, that suck up. That was a big suck up, but um, not that big. But I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> compromising, relying on what appears to be a solution. So he compromised because of this fear that he would get killed so they could take his wife. Now, believing in God's compromise, he had the confidence not only to go to battle against four kings and send them running north, he had the confidence to resist an offer from the wicked king of Sodom, which was, I mean, a lot of stuff. It's a lot of more riches which we see in verses 17 to 18, and receive the blessing of Melchizedek, the king of Salem. We should never compromise, this is for us, we should never compromise what is right and true for worldly treasures or worldly satisfaction. Jesus warns us in many ways about this kind of compromise. He, in uh, Matthew 16, or Matthew 6, 19 to 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I mean, like, I used to be a big football fan and every, all my attention would be on that. That's where my treasure was before I became a believer. It can be anything. What is your, where, do you, where do you compromise? Where do you put your hope and treasure? And what has gained the most attention from you that is still in time from the Lord? Because that's what it's doing. If you put something else first before God, that's where your compromise is. That's where your struggle is. And I would challenge you and myself continually challenge yourself to recognize what that struggle is. Compromising truth only makes it easier to fall into sin and more compromise. The more I compromise, the more it's easier to compromise more, if that makes any sense. It's more easier to keep compromising. Once you stand up to compromise, then you can resist compromise. Resist the devil and he will flee. Resist compromise and you will become more holy. Walk in the Lord, walk in the spirit and not the flesh. 
So next, Mechilzedek brings out bread and wine for the purpose of celebrating God's deliverance of Abram. So he's recognizing that it wasn't, it wasn't just Abram that won this battle. The, the strength and the power came from the Lord. And we recognize that. If we could recognize, learn to recognize that, that where our sustenance comes from, where our strength comes from, where our hope comes from, where our ability to even earn a paycheck comes from, is from the Lord providing for us. If we would recognize that and worship him in that way, I think we would compromise a lot less. So Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. He also blesses Abraham by the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, being the first to come under the promise. If you look back at, look back at Genesis 12:3, I will bless those who bless you. Melchizedek's the first one that blesses Abraham. Did it right there. Melchizedek also blesses God Most High, acknowledging that the Lord is the source of all our blessings. Do you know that God is the source of all our blessings? I just told you, right? So you should know. Now I'm reminding you. Now when we leave here, will we remember? When we get in our car and it starts up, will we recognize it as a, a blessing? When we wake up in the morning, some days are harder than others to get up. Melchizedek also blesses God Most High, acknowledging that the Lord is the source of all our blessings. Abraham acknowledges Melchizedek's superiority by paying him tithe. So Abram, this is where the idea and the practice of tithing comes into play. So, who is Melchizedek? Unlike other prominent characters, there is no record of his birth or death. There's no record of his birth or death. We read about this in Hebrews 7.3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the, resembling the Son of God, resembling he is not an apparition or a, he is not Christ pre-incarnate. He's just resembling the Son of God. He's a type of Christ. Resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. He is king and priest of God Most High, of the Most High God. We read that in Genesis 14, verse 8. His name means king of righteousness, or my king is righteous. Now we wanted to learn about Melchizedek. This is, this is what I could find. He's a mystery. He's called the king of Salem, which is king of the city of peace. So get this. He's the king of righteousness of the city of peace. So Melchizedek is the king of righteousness whose kingdom is a kingdom of peace. It might be sounding a little familiar. That is a picture, a type of what our Christ is. He's the kingdom of righteousness. Our king, Jesus, is the king of righteousness whose kingdom is peace. He was a priest, not by a lineage, but by the appointment of God. So, who knows what lineage priesthood comes from? Don't answer out loud, I'll tell you. It's the lineage of Levi. You have to be a Levite by biblical 
by the Mosaic law to be a priest. Now, what would be the problem with Melchizedek being the priest of the Most High God? Well, we're talking about Abram, and Moses hasn't even been born yet. So it's impossible for Melchizedek to be born from a Levite. So he was a priest not by lineage, but by the appointment of God. This stands in contrast to the Levitical priesthood, appointed by God like Christ. We read in Hebrews 7.3, resembling the Son of God, a type of Christ. When we say that someone is a type of Christ, we are saying that a person in the Old Testament behaves in a way that corresponds to Jesus' character or actions in the New Testament. Not is, not it wasn't, he was not Jesus pre-incarnate. It was just behavior that resembled that. Do you know that God knew what he was going to do at the end? So back at the beginning, even before creation, he knew what he was going to do at the end. So is that so hard to get your minds around? Sometimes. So Melchizedek's priesthood is anticipating Christ's eternal existence and unending priesthood. Jesus meets the qualification by way of his resurrection. That it, eternal, eternal, his resurrection. Hebrews 7, 16 to 17 says, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. In verse 16, Who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And where's Jesus right now? He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Now, who? what line did Jesus come through? He didn't come through the Levitic. And he's a high priest, right? In the order of Melchizedek, a high priest forever. He came from the line of Judah. Abram has now been blessed by Melchizedek, the king of Salem, he was acknowledged, acknowledged as the superior, excuse me, as the superiority and legitimacy of Melchizedek as the priest of the high, Most High God by giving him 10% of everything he brought back from the recovery of Lot and all that from the raid. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. not listen to king of Sodom what, is, what did he say he embraced his calling is what he did that's when he said I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high possessor of heaven and earth that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours lest you should say I have made Abraham rich he wasn't going to take a sandal strap that isn't like a compliment let me tell you that He's not complimenting him right there. So Abraham, Abram, then embraces his calling. He lifts his hand in a pledge to God, the one who owns it all anyways. When we ask for God for things that we truly need, do you think he'll answer? Because who owns it all? He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. If he doesn't give us things, do we, are we in contempt of God, thinking we have something coming to us? Are we behaving like the world? 
So Abram rejects the king of Sodom and the riches that come from the worldly. He forsakes the compromise that he once embraced and clings to his calling, trusting the Lord God most high. Abram rejects the king of Sodom's offer to be to the point of saying, I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours in verse 23. What God has called Abram to is fulfilling the promises of Genesis 12.3. In you, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. They shall be blessed. They will be blessed. It is a promise. It is a kingdom calling that God has on Abraham and Abraham is finally beginning to grab a hold of. And we know as we will learn in the coming weeks, he's going to stumble. But don't you and I stumble as well? Even those of us who call ourselves Christians who are walking in the faith, do we stumble? But God's grace is sufficient enough. And he carries us through. If you are a follower of, follower of Christ, you are a part of the kingdom calling. God's called you into his kingdom. He's given you something to do. He's given you a circle of influence that I don't have, people that you can reach for the kingdom, people that you can reach for Christ. So embrace your calling in Christ. It says in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Hear that. We are. This is talking to us. A holy nation, a people for his own possession. A possession of God, the Father, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now, but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's our calling. That's our challenge. Our challenge is to embrace and put our confidence in the Lord. To forsake compromise. To embrace our kingdom calling. And if you're not in this calling, if you're not in this kingdom calling, hear what I'm saying. Christ died for you Two, he put on your sin upon his body and gave you his righteousness. That is known as the great exchange that we were talking about this morning in uh, church history. That, is the, that just blows my mind that Christ would do that for us. If we would just embrace it, for those, of us, for those who are lost, embrace that truth. He has hope for you because you hear his word, you can turn to him. So put your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, forsake compromise, reject the fear and drama of this world, and by the Spirit, embrace your kingdom calling. Proclaim Christ as our hope, as our confidence, and our calling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your 
truth. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have taken our sin and placed it on yourself. We thank you that you have given us salvation by your power. You have given us uh, the privilege of knowing you and serving you. So, Lord, I pray you would equip us to be confident in what you have done for us. And, Lord, I pray that we'd embrace our calling and that we would glorify you as we go out and enter the darkness with the truth of life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.